6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. Well, we're continuing our exploration of the Epistle of the Hebrews. This is our fifth session, and we're going to be focusing on chapter 4. Now, the entire letter is organized rather well. It's, it's primarily going to focus on the Christology, study of Jesus Christ, and how he represents a new and better deliverer compared to the Old Testament. And the early chapters deal with him presenting him better than the angels. He's an apostle better than Moses, leader uh, better than Joshua better than Aaron. We're going right through Judaism, if you will, and we'll ultimately get to the better covenant, a better sanctuary, better sacrifice, and then a lot of practical things at the end. This is the classical organization of the epistle, but what it really overlooks is five specific warnings. And uh, the first of five occurred in chapter two. The second one occurs in Bridges, chapter three and four, actually. The most troublesome passage in the New Testament is the fifth warning, which we'll deal with, obviously, uh, when we get to chapter 6. And there's a final fifth one, a fourth one and a fifth one wrapping up the, the uh, epistle. But it's important to understand the integrity of these five warnings. These aren't little uh, diversions that are sort of inserted. Some authors tend to treat it that way. That misses the real point. They're an integrated pattern of five major warnings. The first is deals with the danger of drifting, which we dealt with in chapter 2. This time we're going to incur the third one, the danger of disobedience, which bridges chapter 3 and 4. And then the big one is in chapter 5 and 6, and we're going to deal with that, of course, when we get there, and then there's a couple more before we finish the, the book. But we want to understand that this danger of disobedience, this second of five warnings, is going to be a kernel topic for not only chapter 3, but chapter 4. It actually bridges them. But I want to emphasize once again that these five are a unit. They go together and they each complement each other. Each one builds on the other in, a, in virtually a climactic pattern. And each will intensify up until the fifth one, which will be a wrap-up one. And all of these lean heavily on the experience of Israel at Kadesh Barnea in the wilderness. And uh, it's, we're going to look at that very, very carefully. We had out of Egypt, in the Exodus, a redeemed people, and yet they failed miserably at Kadesh Barnea, and we want to understand what that involved and what it didn't involve. And so we also need to understand that this entire epistle takes for granted that the reader is saved, is a believer. And this epistle does not deal with any opportunity or loss uh, to forfeit somehow the past aspect of salvation, which we call justification. That's a once and for all, 100% done by Christ kind of thing. So there is no attack in this epistle on the, the eternal security of the believer. 
And that's where a lot of confusion occurs, where some of the passages, if taken out of context, would seem to suggest that. The warnings that we're going to see admonish the believers to press on and obtain all that God has promised to the faithful overcomer. And uh, yes, there are things you can forfeit. Justification is not one of them. And uh, these warnings represent the very real possibility of the loss of privileges or rewards offered to the believer. And all of this will be revealed at the judgment seat of Christ, the primary event that occurs right after the harpazo, the gathering of the church. So what's at stake here? Are these believers going to lose their, uh, what is it that they could lose or uh, forfeit? Not their salvation. That's a key point, and we've dealt with that in the past. I point you to John 10 and other passages that nail that. But what it does do, it highlights the possibility of forfeiting rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. And we can't escape any of this by trying to apply it to other groups. The burden of this epistle to the Hebrews is not rescuing sinners from hell, but rather it's to bring sons to glory. The issue throughout the entire epistle is going on to maturity. Let's keep that in mind. So as we look at the outline here, last time we went from chapter 2 to chapter 3, and we got introduced into this whole idea that the apostle, which is here used as a title of Christ, as, as the, the apostle to the Jews, is better than Moses. And uh, we're, going, we're going to now go to chapter 4, but we'll discover because the warning in the second of the five warnings, bridges these two chapters to really, we need to rec just recognize that chapter four is really a continuation of chapter three. So therefore, there'll be some intensive review of chapter three to, as we go forward. So let's just take another glimpse as where we were last time. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Strange title to use of Jesus Christ. It's the only place in the scripture where it speaks of him as an apostle, the sent one. The wherefore, of course, is a typical Pauline connector, connecting the, what's just gone on to what's now coming. This is sort of uh, connecting the past to the, the, to the future in terms of his rhetoric here. And uh, so, and we go to uh, holy brethren. So the, this is another underscore that the readers are presumed to be saved. They, they're holy brethren. These are not unbelievers he's writing this letter to. And then he speaks of the heavenly calling, which brings on a heavenly inheritance. And that's really the whole subject here, to become partakers. We encounter the term metakoi, which is a partaker of Christ. And uh, not everybody's a metakoi. Not all believers are metakoi. We want to understand what the differences are. And that's going to come up again and again. And then he uses this strange expression of Jesus Christ, calling him the apostle. And the fact that he uh, calls him an apostle is a clue as to who the writer is. Paul regarded, felt his mandate was to the Gentiles. But to intrude on, uh, on this area, uh, apostle of the Jews, would be a super arrogation. It's another reason Paul didn't sign this epistle. He's simply laying out some reasoning. He's not presenting it as an apostle that, he, that would be causing him mentally at least to be in, in, intruding on what's un, in his mind uniquely Christ's mission here. But then uh, we go, continue in, in uh, Hebrews 3, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, Today if ye will hear his voice, he's going to quote extensively here from Psalm 95. Today if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness. That's that event that occurred in Numbers 13 and 14. We'll be exploring in more detail. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works for 40 years. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation and said, They do always err in their heart 
and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Those are God's words being quoted in Psalm 95, here being quoted in Hebrews 3. But it's interesting to note, because it's going to be very important as we go in further chapters 2, that God swore an oath here. It'd be interesting just to make a list of the rare occasions that God swears an oath. And uh, that's going to be very important to understand as we proceed. The wherefore, again, is this Pauline connector that connects in both directions, what, just, what has just been said to what's coming. And, and this is the psalm that he's quoting. Let's just examine it to keep it in our mind. This is Psalm 95, picking up about verse 6. Come now, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Then we come to the part that has been quoted so often in the New Testament. Today, if ye will hear His voice, harden not your heart as in the provocation, as in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, saw my work, forty years long was I grieved with this generation, and said, it is, it is a people that do err in their heart, that have not known my ways, unto whom I swear in my wrath, that they shall not enter into my rest. So our, our rendering of it, in, as we see it in Psalm 95, is pretty, matches pretty tightly to the way it's quoted in Hebrews. But this last verse, verse 11, unto whom I swear in my wrath, ooh, that's scary, God so angry that he swears an oath that they shall not enter into my rest. And that's going to lead us to the main topic of what we're going to deal with here in chapter 4. What do you mean by the rest? So we're going to look, we're looking at chapters 3 and 4, and one of the issues that's going to emerge in our perceptions here is what is meant by rest? Strange word. and may not mean what you first assume it means. And he speaks of a creation rest, he speaks of a Canaan rest, and a Sabbath rest. Are they the same thing? And if not, how do they differ? What do they have in common? So let's take a look at rests. We're going to see this term here, of course, in the to address to the Hebrew Christians. But they're quoting, I'm going to move up earlier in time, back to Psalm 95, written in the times of David. So David alludes to this same thing. In fact, that's what we're quoting uh, in Psalm 95. But that, in turn, is alluding to an event that occurs at Kadesh Barnea in Numbers 13 and 14. So they're here on the, uh, uh, listed in chronological order, but we're looking back from our present, present time, being a Hebrews reader here, back to David, in fact, even earlier, back to Moses at Kadesh Barnea. And the, these, the two allusions in Numbers 13 and Psalm 95 is sometimes called the Canaan rest, because it deals with their failure to enter into their rest at Kadesh Barnea. And we're going to call that the Canaan rest as to, to distinguish it from a couple of others that are going to surface in our study. Now, the main point here is that whatever was available to them that they blew at Kadesh Barnea apparently is still open to them because that's the point of Psalm 95. David's alluding to it and implying that that offer to enter into God's rest is still open to them in the days of David. So whatever it is wasn't foreclosed for, from them. Uh, at Kadesh Barnea, except maybe in some limited sense. So we want to get a sense of that as we go here. So let's continue in chapter 3. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation of the day of temptation of the wilderness. This again is, of course, quoting from Psalm 95. But notice that the Scripture here ascribes that not to David, which of course penned it, but it attributes this to the Holy Ghost. Interesting Thing that, that this is uh, 
uh, uh, underscore of the inspiration of the word here. And this term provocation keeps coming up, which isn't obvious unless you really know your Bible. So what is it alluding to? The provocation. The Greek word is parapokrasnos, which is used only three times in the New Testament. And all three times, it's in this chapter. So even though it's familiar in our ears, it's primarily because of this passage. Now we know from Numbers 14 that the children of Israel provoke God ten times while they're in the wilderness, but this particular one was the turning point. This changed their history. This caused them to take a 40-year detour for what should have been an 11-day journey. Our God is immutable. It's interesting that the Israelites, however, so thoroughly upset God that He swore on His own name that they would not enter the Promised Land. Now, many times in the Scripture, we see the term that God repents. When he's talking to Moses or Amos, he'll present something, and apparently Moses or Amos would talk him out of it. Well, most scholars would recognize that as an anthropomorphism. God knew in advance what he's really going to do, and so he's, in a sense, toying with them. When he, he tells Moses he's going to wipe out everybody, and Moses, well, don't do, if you do that, then this, 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 and Moses renegotiates it. Same thing happens with Amos, where several times God says what he's going to do, and Amos prays about it, and God would appear to change his mind. It, it's not as if he really changed his mind. He's, that's his way of, of uh, communicating. And, but there are cases where God swears an oath which forecloses his opportunity to repent. And that's really the point of swearing an oath. And it, it, it would be instructive as you go through your Bible to note those places where God swears an oath. That's a very, very important way of underlining it. And so God made up in here at Kadesh Barnea, He made up His mind, and He would not repent. The idea of God repenting is a key uh, aspect when we get to chapter 6. But let's examine at this point Numbers 14 so we have this pivotal event at Kadesh Barnea clear in our minds. First question I have of you, what do these people have in common? We've got a list of people here. There's 12 of them. What do they have in common? Well, if I tell you that they're from 12 different tribes, you can begin to guess who they are. And of course, that turns out that 10 of them are the ones that brought the, back the bad report. Two of them, Caleb and Hosea, later called Joshua, is uh, the ones that distinguish themselves by having the faith to go in and take over the land. So let's take a look at Numbers 14. And just take a look at the chapter because it's so pivotal for our understanding here. All the congregation have lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured. In chapter 13 is when they sent the spies, and the spies came back with this bad report. All the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. Get that. All the, the, the whole nation was upset with Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God that we had died in this wilderness? <laughs> Well, they're going to get their wish. You've got to be careful what you wish for. Wherefore hath the Lord brought us to, unto this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return into Egypt? So this is the murmuring going on. And said one to another, Let us make a captain and let us return into Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation, children. This was not a casual issue. This caused major, major tension. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes. And they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to search it is an exceeding good land. And if the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it us a land which floweth with milk and honey. Only rebel not ye against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bred for us. 
Their defense has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. That was the, the, the attitude of Joshua and Caleb. However, verse 10, But all the congregation made stone them with stones. This is having a different difference of opinion. Okay? And the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. That must have got their attention. They're mad enough that they're about to stone these two uh, witnesses. But God himself intervenes, and that must have been a dramatic moment. And the Lord said unto Moses, How long will this people provoke me? Now, see, that's why they call it the provocation. This event's called the provocation. How long will these people provoke me? How long will it be ere they believe me for all the signs which I have shown among them? Get the picture here. Only 11 days ago, they had, they're delivered from the death of the firstborn in Egypt. And, uh, and so on. The, you know, a dramatic, dramatic uh, uh, series of events. You would think they would be uh, still operating under the awe of the ex experiences of the last few weeks. God continues, I will smite them with the pestilence and disinherit them and will make of thee a greater nation and mightier than there. In other words, he's proposing to Moses, he's going to wipe them all out and start over. That's a threat that's implied there. But notice what he's saying, I will disinherit them. Key word as we, to understand the, the, the vocabulary here. In Hebrews 3, verse 17 it alludes to all this, but with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that he should not, that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believe not? I want you to notice that the rest is equivalent to inheriting. They're almost synonymous. That they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believe not. For we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. We're continuing our numbers review. God has just indicated Moses is going to wipe them all out and start over. Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear it, for thou broughtest up these people in thy might from among them, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land, for they have heard that thou, Lord, art among his people, and thou, Lord, art seen face to face, and that thy cloud standeth over them, and that thou goest before them by, time in a by day, time in a pillar of a cloud, and in pillar of fire by night. Now if thou should kill all his people as one man, then the nations which have heard the fame of thee will speak, saying, you know, this, it's just amusing to see Moses trying to manipulate God, appeal, appealing to God's pride, so to speak. <laughs> then the nations which have heard the fame of thee will speak, saying, because the Lord was not able to bring this people to the land which he swore unto them, therefore he hath slain them in the wilderness. And now I beseech thee, let the power of my Lord be great, according to as thou hast spoken, saying, The Lord is long-suffering, and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. Pardon, I beseech thee, the iniquity of this people, according to the greatness of thy mercy, as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. That's Moses' appeal to God. And God responds to that. In, in verse 20, the Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word. So understand that. God forgave them for their lack of faith. He's, he pardoned them. But as truly as I live, God continuing, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. I want you to notice that he's pardoned them, but even though he's pardoned them, something else is coming. 
Because all these men which have seen my glory and my miracles, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and have tempted me now these ten times, and have not hearkened to my voice, surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers. Neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. So even though they're forgiven, they're not going to inherit what God had given to them. Here's a key verse. Surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers. Neither shall any of them that provoke me see it. So there's a two-part oath here that's critical to understanding Numbers 14. The first is that God, that God pardoned them according to Moses' petition. That can only mean that the people were forgiven of the iniquity of the sin that they had just committed. In the same breath, though, the Lord uttered the second part of His oath, denying them entrance into the land. So they're saved. They don't return to Egypt, but at the same time, they don't get the inheritance that would, would have been theirs had they had faith. Continuing Numbers 14. But my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit in him, hath followed me fully, and him will I bring into the land whereinto he went, and his seed shall possess it. The Malachites, the Canaanites dwelt in the valley, and tomorrow I'll turn you and get you into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. And the Lord spoke unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear this, with this evil congregation which murmur against me? I have heard, from, heard the murmurings of the children of Israel which they murmur against me, saying to them, As truly as I live, saith the Lord, as ye have spoken in mine ears, so will I do to you. Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and all that were numbered of you according to your whole number, from twenty years old and upward, which have murmured against me. And doubtless ye shall not come into the land concerning which I swear to make you dwell therein, save Caleb, son of Jehunah, and Joshua, the son of Nun. I swear unto you. There's that key point. God swore an oath, which means he can't deviate from that oath. But then he continues, But your little ones, which he said should be a prey, them will I bring in. And they shall know the land which ye have despised. But as for you, your carcasses, they, they shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall wander in the wilderness forty years, and bear your whoredoms until your carcasses be wasted in the wilderness. After the number of the days in which ye searched the land, even forty days, that was how long the spies had to search it all out. Each day for a year shall ye bear your iniquities, even forty years, and ye shall know my breach of promise." I, the Lord, have said, I will surely do it unto all this evil congregation that are gathered together against me in this wilderness. They shall be consumed, and there shall they die. This two-part oath that he mentioned, as if to reinforce that, he says, as I live. The Lord repeats that three times, that their corpses shall fall in this wilderness. He reemphasizes, underscores that. And by the way, as you analyze this, you cannot equate their failure to enter Canaan uh, untimely death can be equated with damnation. Those are not the issues here. Some people uh, make a, a, a get into trouble trying to over over apply the uh, uh, possible analogies. Continue Numbers fourteen. And the men which Moses sent to search the land, who returned and made all the congregation to murmur against him by bringing up a slander upon the land. Even those men that did bring up the evil report upon the land died by the plague before the Lord. Apparently, they died specifically early. Rest. Didn't take him 40 years to, 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 to uh, be taken out of the picture. And uh, so, but Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, uh, they were of the men that went to search the land. They lived still. And Moses told, told these sayings unto all the children of Israel and the people mourned greatly, and they rose up early in the morning 
and got up into the top of the mountain saying, Lo, we, ha we be here and we will go up into the place which the Lord hath promised, for we have sinned. So they changed their mind. The people themselves repented of what they did. They repented, but it was too late. God did not repent because He swore an oath. So therefore they suffered defeat when they, they subsequently tried to enter the land on their own and they, AI, and they really, they were, they were in big trouble. So God is jealous about sharing His glory is the underscore here. And uh, those, to whom he uh, to, those to whom He shows great and mighty works and His glory take heed. Now if God held them accountable for His great deeds, boy, what position that, does that put us in? Because we have seen through the centuries even greater things than they were held accountable for. But it's interesting, the impossibility of repentance that it was going to give us trouble when we get to Hebrews chapter 6. The repentance that's at issue may be on God's part, not the people's part. We'll defer that until we get to chapter 6. But recognize that that's an overlooked possibility by many, many that review that passage. These are all believers. Their justification is not at issue, and 1 Corinthians 3 deals with that in effect. Judgment and not mercy will emanate from the Bema Seat of Christ, and with a just recompense reward. Positive and negative is appropriate, and there's a whole study that undergirds that that you should take in on, on your own, though. what really is going on in the judgment seat. Every one of us has an appointment. Every one of us are due for a final exam before the Lord Himself. Getting back to Hebrews 3, which this was all an amplification of. When your fathers tempted me and proved me and saw my works forty years, wherefore I was grieved for that generation, said they do always err in their heart, have not known my ways. For forty years they have been rebellious against the Lord. Deuteronomy 9 that, uh, underscores this. They do always err in their heart, which is exactly what Moses documents in, in Deuteronomy 9 and elsewhere. Continuing in Hebrews, so I swear in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest. That is the heavy indictment that is nailed to the masthead here. So in the, in the historical sense, they've been wandering for 40 years on a detour. But God uh, took, took an oath. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Hebrews. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time. As we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.